you guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 25 through 29 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. You are more than welcome to look on your electronic device as well. Um, We have been in the book of Hebrews for a while now. We're finishing up chapter 12 today and then jump into chapter 13. And we, uh, we've been pushed by the author. He's been, he's been pushing on us to, to lay down these sins that so easily entangle us. And he's kind of been, been comparing us and, and the Israelites in that day, those that were either surrendered to Christ and moving and walking obedience with him, to either being that or being like Esau, being someone who, who is willing to exchange their birthright, exchange the, the kingdom of God, exchange the glory and the beauty of God for a single meal. And he's been challenging us to really strive for peace and strive for unity and to to really push into the understanding of what it means to to follow God and to to live for him. And he kind of circles back to a beginning point of Hebrews chapter 2. And so it's one of those things where this book of Hebrews isn't necessarily, it doesn't, doesn't go a straight line, but it kind of it circles over and over and over again as he's making some theological points. So let's, let's read our text and then we'll dig in. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, speaking of God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." And so he, he continues the, the discussion and the understanding of, of what he's been doing about comparing these two mounts, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the, the mount that, that represents the old covenant system and the, and the mount that represents the new covenant. And he, he goes back to that imagery and he talks about when, when God was speaking that the whole mountain would shake. And at one point, the, the Israelites, because of their, their, their refusal of God, they said, don't speak to us, God, speak to, speak to Moses, let him tell us. Like they, they, they asked him to stop speaking to them directly out of fear of their own hearts and their own struggles. And so we see, we see him come back to this imagery. In fact, he, he brings about a, a, a warning, which is something he's been doing over and over again. He did a lot of them in the, in the first few chapters of the book. But he comes back and almost repeats one that we see out of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. So I'll read it real quickly. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by his signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so he's coming back to the same warning, like, don't drift, don't, don't fall away. And like we've been talking about on a, on a repeat for a long time, that the book of Hebrews is really about us understanding and recognizing that faith isn't something that just happens once in a while, but faith is something that's meant to be endured through the perseverance of life to the end. You want to understand where you are with God. It's, it's to the end of your life when you've still persevered, when you've seen the, the Spirit work miracles and miracles and miracles in your life. You see yourself walking in obedience. We see, like the beginning of chapter 12 said, not only is Jesus the author or the beginner or the founder of our faith, but he is the perfecter or the completer of it. 
So we see this sanctification process happening in our life. And he comes back to this right here. He turns to kind of the central theme of what Hebrews is, um, which is essentially a true picture of God and of ourselves. A true understanding of who God is and who we are in light of the fact that God is who he says he is. And he, and he, does, he does so in this, in this beautiful kind of Im, Im, like weaving in of Old Testament theology as he's been working through this huge doctrinal statement and sermon as he's going through people. And so he quotes Old Testament scripture that every single Jewish person there was aware of. And this one right here, he comes to Haggai. He quotes Haggai 2, he adds two words. He quotes Haggai 2, 6 in this text today. The Old Testament text reads, yet um, once more I will shake even heaven and earth. The author reverses the words heaven and earth and includes phrases not only but also to bring about the significance of the text for discussion. So he's, he's coming, he's saying, look, this has already been spoken of, that, that, that the prophet and Haggai, this has been spoken, that this is going to happen, that the earth is going to shake. It's going to shake, and, and, and not only is the earth gonna shake, but the heavens are gonna shake as well. And this isn't just some small shaking, this is a big shaking. The scriptures are, are riddled with a number of texts that point to the fact that there will someday come a shaking of both heavens and earth or both of the heavens and of the earth. And that this shaking will, will culminate Jesus' second coming. It will bring about the kingdom to its entirety. We've already experienced the tangible kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, but yet we are not, we're not in the full completion of it, not the full fruition of it, where he is going to turn and make all things new, new heavens and new earth. He, interpret, he interprets the shaking as this once more as, a, as kind of a, an, an end times judgment that's coming. He's been doing this the whole book. It's like you, you, either, you either are with Christ or you aren't. There isn't a middle ground. There isn't a, I kind of like this. There isn't a way for us to, to hold on to these beliefs, these religions, and try and bring Jesus into that. It's, it's an abandonment of everything that we are for the sake of Christ. And so he, he comes in and talks about the end times. Isaiah 13, 13 says, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Revelation 6, 12 through 17, uh, cut out a little bit of it. It says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as a sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand before it? And so we see this, this, this end times, this eschatological end time view of judgment coming that the earth is going to shake. And that's where the author goes just before he, he kind of rams out last, the last chapter a bunch of really applicable things on how we are to live in light of the fact that this is coming. He comes to a very practical level after this and he goes out of that. But he, he, is, he is confident that this is going to happen. He is confident that this is what this means. And the shaking that will happen will be the new heavens and new earth created. And those that remain will be those that are part of the unshakable kingdom. And that's the, that's the statement he's making here. In fact, the reason our author follows this picture of festive celebration, so he just, like, chapter 22, 12, 22 through 24 is like this beautiful festive celebration. It's like, what is happening here? It's, it's profound, it's joyful, it's amazing. And then with a stern warning here is to, once again, the purpose of this book is the spiritual condition of the community. 
Remember, the, the people that were here, there were some that were following Jesus, like, like with the asterisks in their hands. There were some that were, that were walking with Jesus, but they weren't really fully surrendered to him. There were some that, that, that still would have been completely Jewish and not really fully surrendered to Jesus. And there were some that had started to slide back into the Jewish system. They started sliding back into the, the, the temple system and the sacrificial system there. And the author had already said, like, look, when you do that, you're saying that Jesus needs to be sacrificed over and over and over again. That's just not how it works. And so he's saying to this people, look, you can celebrate. This is a joyful thing. This is a profound thing. When we see the holiness of God at Mount Sinai, we don't have to fear because of the personalness of God, personalness, personal of God through Jesus Christ in Mount Zion. We don't have to fear the holiness of God because God has deemed us holy through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And he's, he's paralleling these two up. And then he, he says it's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing to submit your life to God. It's a joyful thing to, to live in obedience to the way that God is already making you. He's, he's moving in a way. He's sanctifying you. He's growing you. This is a joyful thing. And then he comes back with this stern warning here. He says, but make sure you don't ignore this. Listen to this voice. Don't reject this voice like Esau did or the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Because ultimately that rejection, and he says, he says, look, if that rejection brought about them not entering the promised land, how much greater would it be for us to reject the new covenant of God through Jesus Christ? How much greater of an issue would it be to reject the new covenant of Jesus Christ? So we see that, that ultimately he's, he's pushing on people, which I would say even today, Jesus has these same words, and we've, we've talked about this through Hebrews. There are many on the day who will say, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not attend church and give money and serve on a regular basis? Didn't we, didn't we do a really great job of doing all these things for you? And he's going to say, away from me, I never, ever knew you. The earth is going to shake. The heavens will shake with it, and a new thing will come. And the only thing that will not shake is the kingdom of God. The only thing that has a firm foundation is those that have planted themselves solely on the work of Jesus Christ and his, what he has done for them. And that's what we stand in. And that's who we are. And that's what this author's going about. He's saying our inheritance is unmovable. This should inspire thanksgiving and reverent worship. And that's where he goes here. He says, look, if you, if you, want, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you want to live for the kingdom of God, then this should be a joyful, reverent, wonderful experience. Yes, it's, it, we, we'd already met, we already talked about the fact that a lot of the trials and struggles we're doing is discipline from the Lord, but it's still a joyful thing because He knows what's best for us. He knows, he knows what we are to be and what He's created us to be, and He's making us into that. He's, he's, he's molding us. He's, he's chipping away the things that don't belong. He's cutting away the vines that are not connected to Him. And he's making us more and more and more like Jesus, which would be the desire of every single one of our hearts that are surrendered to him. And he comes to this text and he says, look, there's this huge, huge deal. If God shook things at Sinai and those who refused to hear were judged, how much more responsible are we today to experience the blessings of the new covenant? If God is, is holy and big and the expectation is holiness, to be in his presence, and we can achieve that not by our own merit or by our own work, but by what Jesus Christ has done for us by being our high priest, by being the sacrifice, by being the one that everything that Hebrews has been pointing to, then ultimately what it brings about is a life of reverent worship. And this is what he's saying. And he's going to hit some of the things, what it looks like. We can see in chapter 13, he tells you a lot of things that are pleasing to God and how you do it. It's the way we treat each other. It's how we walk in obedience. And he's saying, the way that you live your life today shouldn't 
mirror that of a shakable kingdom. If you are of God, if you are his child, then, then the way that you live today, you can stand on firm foundation. You can stand on a rock that will not move, that nothing will shake away from it, that ultimately, you, no matter how scary, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard your life may be, you are a part of a kingdom that no one can take away. Nothing can snatch you out of. And so he says now, he says, so then live your life in reverent worship of that. Joyful celebration and fear and awe, this reverent and awe, this fear and trembling, this idea is, is recognizing God's holiness. See, look, the author isn't trying to do away with the holiness of God at Mount Sinai. He's not trying to push on people to wrestle with the holiness of God and say, okay, we don't have to really worry about the holiness of God anymore because we have the relationship of God through Jesus Christ. No, he never ever does away with the holiness of God. He never changes that. But he tells us again, he, he hits us to, to, to drive that home. He says, God is a consuming fire. In verse 29, he's, he's a consuming fire. He's a, he's a holy, just judge. And when we hear that statement, it, it does one of two things to every single person in this room or anyone that comes to this text. It either brings about reverent worship and awe or fear and shrinking back like in the caves or hiding like Revelation talked about. So when we, when we are confronted with the holiness of God and we realize just how naked and vulnerable we are, He knows every single thought that you have. He knows every single thing you've done, are going to do. He even knows when you're praying to try and get Him to do something and you're pretending like you can manipulate Him in some way. He knows all of those things. And if He says, you can stand in boldness in my throne room, not because of those things, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for those things. So we can rest in peace. So this, this scripture is, is meant to be a joyful scripture, not a begrudging like, oh, I gotta obey God. No, not again. It's a, it's a joyful thing. It's a, look, I get, to, I get to live my life in obedience to God's word so that I can depict and show the, the brand that he's making that's more and more like Jesus, that's a part of his kingdom. It's a complete version. So listen to the voice of God who speaks by the blood of Jesus. He says, I will forgive you, I will cleanse you, I will accept you, I protect you, I keep you, I will give you an unshakable home, and I will always be there for you. Trust me. See, God, God doesn't bring about this scripture to bring a fear in that says, that, well, listen, you better obey him because he is a consuming fire. That doesn't really bring about an excitement to follow him. It doesn't really, that doesn't really push on people to go, man, I really want to follow the Lord because I'm just worried he might smite me or destroy me if I don't. Instead, instead, he says, look, we should, we should experience in a moment of just joyful celebration because of the fact that that judgment is not on us because he sent all of that judgment on Jesus Christ. The wrath of, of God was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. And so those of us that sit as a follower of Jesus, as a believer, as a Christian, as someone that's submitted to Jesus Christ, this scripture shouldn't cause us to shrink back, but should call, embolden us to stand forward. Because we can stand on something that is built that has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. We can stand on something that no matter how hard the world shakes, no matter how difficult it gets, we know that we are firmly planted and there is nothing that can take us out of the grasp of the Lord's hands. And this is what he's pushing at. 
And so he hits these, these two ways. He brings up Esau and Mount Sinai and Mount Zion and this idea of what does it really mean for us to live in obedience? And he says, look, he's not saying that if you don't obey God, this is what will happen because we all know that ultimately God's forgiveness extends far beyond our lack of obedience at times. He's saying, no, you are going to want to obey God because you recognize that you are not of the shakable world. You're of an unshakable kingdom of God. You're going to want to live in obedience to Him. You're going to want to to worship Him, and not just in music, but in your life. Your life will be about worship. Every single aspect of you will be about worship. You'll see that that when you you set up a chair, it's an opportunity to worship. When you you talk to your neighbor, it's an opportunity to worship. You will see that ultimately worship is your life being about Him. And there's a joyful celebration because you recognize that no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult this world gets, God is still deserving of our worship. And here's the thing, Esau was worshiping too. And we've, we've talked about this, we talked about it many, many weeks ago in, in this book. You were made to worship. You are going to worship something. You know what's interesting is if we live with less gratitude, if we live with less joy from the Lord, we start feeling like we need more. We start wrestling, saying, I want, I want more. And so we start finding these things that were beautiful gifts from God. Yes, he gave you a home. Yes, he gave you a family. He gave you these kids. He gave you this spouse. He gave you this job. Whatever it is, these incredible blessings. And what ends up happening is instead of just being grateful that the Lord is giving you something that, is, that is, doesn't even necessary, doesn't even need to do, and just being grateful and letting that be there, we start idolizing it. And we start worshiping it. And our life becomes about worshiping that single meal that Esau exchanged his birthright for. And so money becomes that. We find our security in our retirement and whatever money we have. And instead of finding our security in the Lord, it, it happens so quickly. We find our value in who we are by what we achieve in this world as opposed to who we are in Christ Jesus. He's saying, look, there's not an in-between. You're not, gonna, you're not gonna walk this middle line and all of a sudden figure out, like, I found this third way. He says, if you wanna live a part of this world, or do you want to live a part of his kingdom? Your life should and will resemble it. Yes, you will make mistakes. Yes, you will fall short. Yes, like I know from so many people that had conversations over the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of bitterness in this community. It was, it was kind of shocking to me. I'm very, very proud of those of you that, that, that did the, the effort and made the work and, and re- refused to stay bitter, refused to excuse it away and, and, and pushed into someone. But man, it is, it is amazing how easily the enemy can get a foothold in our lives. And for shakable things, that's the crazy thing. Your finances tomorrow could all go away. Everything could go away. It's happened. It's, it's actually historically happened where all the money's gone away. The economy could completely crash. And if your security and your hope is in finances, oh man, talk about being shaken. If you, if you find your value in what people think of you, one mistake. And usually what happens if your values and what people think of you, you make those mistakes and you hide it because you're afraid of what they may see of you if you let it out, which is just another foothold of the enemy. Saying, yeah, 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 you keep hiding. I stole a marble from my kids. Okay, this is a marble. I'm gonna give you this image. I, I thought of this. I don't know. It made sense to me, so we'll see if it makes sense to you guys. I think what the scripture is talking about is that ultimately every single one of us that have surrendered to Jesus, we've given our lives to him, he's, he's written in the book of life. There are, we're his children, right? We're this marble. We're this marble. 
He created us this way. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're for. And we're beautiful and we're profound. And what happens is we take this marble and we go out in the dirt and we plump it in some mud and we make a nice big ball around it. And this whole thing is just filled with mud. And you can't see the marble anymore. And you let it sit out in the sun so it dries. So you got like a baseball of mud encasing this shiny little marble, right? And what happens is as we go through life, the Lord starts sanctifying. He starts cutting things off. He starts shaking things up a little bit. And pretty soon starts squeezing. Some pressure gets into your life and, and the crumbling starts coming down. Coming down. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when the heavens and the earth shake, like Revelations or Haggai or any of these books or Isaiah, all these things talk, ultimately what will happen is the, the, the marble will stand true. And you'll be the very thing he created you to be. You'll be perfect and complete and holy without the stain of this world. Without the, the, the depravity and the footholds of the sinfulness that we carry about in our flesh. And ultimately, there's going to be a shaking that happens. And every single one of us that are his children are going to come out looking perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. We won't be longing for anything else because we'll have everything in God. And that will be all that sustains us. And what the author is saying is he's saying, look, you don't have to wait you don't have to wait until the final shaking to really live a life of reverent worship to God. There's no reason to wait. The Spirit of God has descended on you through the faith in Jesus Christ. You have all spiritual blessings. You have all strength to do everything. So why? Why would you limit yourself? Why would you pretend? Why would you wait when you are this perfect masterpiece, not mistakenly made? You are a child of God. And this God is not a fallible, messed up dad. He's a perfect dad. He never disciplines you out of anger. He only disciplines you because he knows what's best for you. He never will leave you nor forsake you. In fact, he, he showed that not only through Jesus Christ, but through sending his spirit to live with us. And so we have an idea. We have, we have an opportunity to recognize God as who he truly is. Uh, one scholar said this, and I'm just going to read it because it's amazing. He said, the true God isn't tame. He's a fire. The holiness of God emphasized through the temple ritual is not undermined by the fact that in the new covenant his people are invited into the presence in a new way. To think like that would be to make a radical mistake. It isn't that God has stopped being holy. God hasn't changed a bit. It is rather that Jesus has opened a new and living path through the curtain and right up to him. Only when we remind ourselves of God's holiness do we fully appreciate the significance of what Jesus achieved. Only when we remind ourselves of God's holiness do we truly and fully appreciate the significance of what Jesus achieved. Gratitude for the present world and for the world to come is the deepest and truest form of worship. Gratitude keeps us from idling the things of this world. It keeps us excited about the world to come. When we bow down before the living God and thank Him from the bottom of our heart for what He's done and for what He will do, it is as though you are a priest in the, in the temple offering the purest, most unblemished sacrifice. Only much, much more. That is the privilege of being a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. See, our, our lives are meant to be worship. Even when we take communion, which we're going to do in just a second here, communion is us declaring not only what Jesus has done for us, it's declaring what he is going to do in and through us. And so when we, when we, when we partake in something like that, we're, we're, we're proclaiming his name of his forgiveness, we're proclaiming his name of come again, Jesus. Bring that marble back to full fruition. Remove the dirt of this world. Bring about your kingdom. So you have a choice to be a part of the shakable or the unshakable. 
Are you worshiping unshakable God or are you worshiping shakable possessions? Is your heart fixed on God or is God your treasure or is the world your treasure? Is God your security or is your retirement plan your security? Is God your fellowship or is your family the sum total of your fellowship? Are you an idolater? Is God your portion in this life or is the world your portion? Do you stand with reverence and awe before the power and holiness of God who is a consuming fire toward all sin and do you clothe yourself with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? so that the fire of God can be seen from within as glory and not as punishment. It's, it's one or the other. And so when we get this picture, this, this, this beautiful picture that ultimately that God says, look, we can stand, we will stand, and with reverence and awe, we will not in any way be shaken beyond anything else that makes us more and more like Him. We don't have to fear that. We don't have to worry about God being a consuming fire. Instead, it should bring us about worship. Our life should be worship. Our, the way that we work should be worship. The way that we communicate to our spouse should be worship. The way that we read the scripture should be worship. All of these things should be worship. This is why it's so contrary to say that I have a God who is, is my king and the Lord of my life while I hate a brother or sister in Christ. This is, that's, just, that's just foolishness. The, the God, John says that, 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 that you're a liar if you say that. So what Jesus says, if you're gonna offer something at the altar, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna worship me and you know that your brother has something against you. Leave this here and go first be reconciled and then come back to me. So we're going we're gonna to take communion. In fact, we're going to do it together today so the ushers are going to come up and just start passing it. Again, the same thing I would encourage you is, is if you are not in a right spot, if you still know that there is a willful disobedience, there's a battle going on in your heart right now that you have not fully submitted or surrendered to God, I would encourage you to refrain from this. Not because it does anything more holy, but because of what you're saying. You're saying you're belittling the very goodness of what God has done for us. The very thing that Jesus instituted, you're, you're making small. The thing that Jesus can't wait to do with us in completion of his kingdom when everything's shaken and gone. And so you're gonna, we're gonna take communion as a community. We're gonna take it together. And right now, as it's passing, I'm gonna give you a moment to repent. I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> In just a second. And I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to just repent before the Lord. Here, here's the most beautiful thing about what communion represents. It's, the, you know, it's his body and it's the blood that's spilled for us. What communion represents is what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Here's the most beautiful thing. Whatever struggle you're carrying right now, the very juice symbolizes the blood that covers whatever sin you wrestle with. There is no sin that that juice doesn't, you don't need to take two of them in hopes that it'll actually cover whatever sin you did last night. In fact, this is just a symbol of what has already been done in your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. So there is no sin too far from the Lord. You are not too far gone. You have not walked down the road too long where the Lord says, no, I'm just, I'm just done with you. You know what's amazing is that, is that no matter how many times you sin, God will never ever, if you are his child, he would never look on you with shame. Romans tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so stop condemning yourself, because he isn't. Would you allow the power of the Spirit inside of you that's clamoring and, and desiring and pushing to be obedient to God's word, would you allow him to work? Would you, would you repent? Would you lay down the sins that so easily entangle us? Would you, would you allow the weights to go away and let him work? And so, Let's repent. Let's give ourselves a moment of quietness. If you need time to go talk to someone else, please do it. Go get up. Go make the phone call right now. Grab them out of the seat if they're near you. 
No one's going to judge you. If they are, that's, that's between them and the Lord. Okay? Be silent. Father, there probably is never enough time for us to repent. <laughs> Some of us, it may feel a, like a, just a laundry list of things that are going. And God, would you just shower your grace? Um, you say that your, your, your grace is, is sufficient. That means more than enough. You tell us that you lavish on grace. You overwhelm us with grace. God, would you remind us of your grace in this moment? We thank you for what you did through Jesus Christ so that we could stand in righteousness with you, so that we could be clothed in your righteousness, so that we could stand in the throne room of God, anchored by Jesus Christ behind the veil, standing and worshiping you while Jesus is equally praying for us and advocating for us and allowing us to be in your presence. Father, it's because of his work, it's because of his broken body, it's because of his sacrifice for sins where your wrath, your judgment, your consuming fire was poured out on him in place of me. God, thank you for that. Forgive us for making light of that and God, would you please, please, please continue to work in our lives like you promised to do. We know you will, God, but would you just push harder into us? Would this be the end of a year where we see not only your goodness, but we see you doing something in us that we cannot in any way, shape, or form take credit for? Father, for those that continue to run from you, for those that continue to hold on to a pain or a bitterness or a, or a sin because they just don't believe you can take it, would you just wreak havoc with their hearts? Would you show them that the consuming fire is paid for that and all you are is a gracious Father that wants to look them in the eyes and tell them you love them? Lord, we ask, would you come shake? Shake this world. Remove us of this dirt. Remove us of this flesh, this sinfulness, and let us, let us experience the true joy that we know surpasses everything that we can experience in this world that is good, of being in the presence with you and the completion of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm gonna fake take communion because I wanna take it with my wife in second <coughs> service, so I'll lead you guys and I'll do that in second service with her. Jesus, um, he standing in the, the upper room right before he's, he's arrested and before he goes in there is when he implements this Last Supper. And again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. He says to them, he says, I, I will not take part in this meal again until my kingdom is in fruition. If I could just hammer in a picture in your mind that Jesus is right now in heaven preparing a place for you. He's like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. They're gonna sit right here. I just, I can't wait to sit with them. I can't wait to have this feast with them. I can't wait to experience this meal with them. But in that moment, he broke it up and says, this, this bread, you get your bread if you want to. He says, this is, this is my body. He says, this is, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. And he gave it to them to eat. And then he calls an audible in a meal that would have had a cup that doesn't make any sense. And he says, this new cup, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the new covenant. This is a cup that didn't even belong in this meal at this point. And he says, this is my blood. This is a new covenant. This blood symbolizes your freedom, your salvation, your life. This blood is for you. It's spilled for you. And so he said, when you drink this, don't only remember, but don't ever forget what this blood means for you and the forgiveness of your sins, and don't ever forget what this blood means for you in the future hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And so he said, please drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. So let's drink. Heavenly Father, it's with a joyful heart, a worship-filled heart, that we celebrate the joy of being able to take communion before you. 
We thank you that you are so good. We thank you that you have sent your son to die for us. We thank you that we can experience the washing of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can be deemed perfect and righteous before you. God, for the individuals that are in this room that didn't take communion, God, would you just, would you restore? Would you reconcile? God, for the individuals that are in here that that aren't even sure that they're following you, God, would you show them that there is nothing that won't be shaken in this world except for your kingdom? They cannot find a firm footing anywhere in this world. No amount of accolades, no amount of money, no amount of relationships, no amount of, of achievements will ever be firm. It'll all be shakable. And so, God, we thank you for what you did for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for the fact that you are advocating for us. And God, thank you that that Jesus is right now praying on behalf of me in the throne room of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to do baptism, which is always a really, really fun thing. Yes, this is a celebration. I love, I love, love baptism. Um, By virtue of reminding us of our connection to Jesus and each other, baptism supports to be, it's, it's incredibly meaningful. In Christianity, baptism is something that that we see that we're commanded to do. In in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and this is the best promise, guys, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some of us forget that, that he is with us always. Jesus is promising to be with us always. We see that that baptism is a union with Christ. We see that specifically in Romans 6. This is why it's it's so wrong and contrary for us to live a life that isn't a part of the kingdom because of what we see in Romans 6. Romans 6 says, 3 through 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So meaning, we've been baptized into Christ. We, We died with him. We went into the tomb with him. We were buried with him. And then it says, it says, were you We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It would be a mistake to say that baptism is what saves us. Romans 3.23 says it's by faith alone that we are saved before the Lord. Baptism is a symbolism of what we've done. And here's here's what's amazing to me, guys. This is what's profound to me, is there's always so many people that, that for some reason, circumstances, fear of man, whatever it may be, that haven't been baptized. They've, they've been walking with the Lord and haven't been baptized. And, and almost every time we have someone's story like that, and Shana's today's story is similar to that. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, I want you to be emboldened by her and the fact that she's stepping out in obedience, that some of you need to step out in obedience. Look, some of you need to leave with wet clothes. I'm just going to say it that way, okay? <laughs> you, have been, you have been disobedient to the Lord in this. Even, some, of you, some of you are like, man, I couldn't take communion again and because I haven't even done this. And so, so you have, you, you, this is a step of faith. This is a, a profound and a beautiful step of faith. It's an analogy. It's kind of like, like a wedding ring, right? Like the wedding ring doesn't make me married. My, my covenant before the Lord makes me married. It's not like, oh, I'm not married. I'm married, right? Like that's, that's foolishness. And if you do that, you've got some other issues. So let's talk, okay? <laughs> But, but baptism is a symbol of, it's, it's kind of the first litman test of following Jesus. It's, it's a step of obedience. And some of you have been disobedient. Not just the timing hasn't worked out, you're being disobedient in it. And so I want to encourage you to be faithful, to step in that way. And so the, the band's going to come up, and Shane, you can come on up, and Matt, come on up. Um, I forgot the mic for Matt, so could someone run that up to me? Um, 
and we're going to baptize her. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 says this, In Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God. Thank you. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So it's saying ultimately that we've been baptized in faith. It's Christ that puts on us, and we can walk in the newness of life with him. This lovely gentleman right here is Matt O'Brien. He runs crew at Boise State, and I just love this guy. His family's awesome. And so he is going to take over from here, if that's okay. Yes. Shana says, the first time I heard the gospel, I was completely overcome by such a strong message of love that I had never heard before. But after accepting Christ, my walk in the first few years was very challenging for me as I struggled to reconcile the importance of my Jewish background with my new faith. I thought that I needed to give up everything to be a true believer, seeking, but seeking God in this, he's given me the blessing of understanding the fulfillment of Jesus in an amazing way through my identity and, and reassured me that who I am in him is perfect. Hmm. Over the past seven years, that message has transformed my life in ways I could never imagine. God has called me to say yes to him in so many ways I never thought of I would have the confidence to do, such as having a passion for sharing my faith to, with others and leading a core group. This is one of the many things that God has called me to say yes to, and today I get to experience his glory in my life in a new way. I'm so proud of the identity that God has blessed me with and very grateful to share it with all of you. 